This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1986, and in space, no one can hear you podcast. Again, the movie Aliens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is is a podcast where we're trying to find the best movies of all time. We are currently in our space miniseries, and we are calling an audible. That's right. We are breaking from the tradition of this show because at any given moment, Amy and I have the power to inject a movie into our miniseries. And Amy, you pulled the switch. I and did. You said, you said we have to do Aliens, and I was so happy that you said that because I think that Alien and Aliens are a conversation that need to be had together, just like Godfather and Godfather Part Two. It's it's they work together. I think at least in the zeitgeist of pop culture, as one film. I mean, would you agree and with that? Just like yeah, just like Boss Baby and Boss Baby Two. You cannot oh. have one without the other. Well, I would say just like Boss Baby One, Boss Baby Two, and then the Boss Baby Netflix limited series, Boss Baby, <laughs> which really builds out the world. Wait, is that a thing? Um, oh, I've watched many a Boss Baby uh, animated show. Uh, oh, not my. not um, Alec Baldwin as Boss Baby in the Boss Baby animated cartoon, but still the swagger, still the energy. And if you're there for the lore, you're going to leave uh, very fulfilled. I imagine it's going to be like that new Lord of the Rings Amazon series, just, you know, giving you all that, you know, extra goodness. Because there's a lot in the in the Boss Baby universe. I call it the uh, the BBU. Wow. Now, now I feel guilty for giving the first Boss Baby a positive review. I did not know what I would have uh, spawned. Look, I, guess I remember... And spawning and being evil women with eggs is uh, where we're going today. I remember, I, and good segue, but I'm not going to let you get out that easy because I'm going <laughs> to just bring back one memory I have of Boss Baby, which was I remember going to the movies and trying to buy a ticket for something and a 10 p.m. sold out screening for Boss Baby was happening. I'm like, 10 p.m.? <laughs> 10 p.m. I get that maybe the 7 p.m. is sold out, but 10? Are there kids in there? Is this purely for adults? Boss Baby has done crossed over, people. Boss Baby is an adult film. Fight me. Uh, And on this, it breaks my heart to report that Boss Baby 2 is no Boss Baby. 
Well, Amy, you know, this is actually a very uh, exciting week for us because we are talking about space. We are talking about a successful franchise. And I can't help but see the connections to space. Boss Baby. Boss Baby. Oh, actually, it all does tie together. And a successful franchise. Uh, Fast 9, they go to space, baby. Spoiler alert. Uh, It's not a spoiler alert anymore, even though I was... I was sworn to keep it a secret, uh, but now it seems like everyone knows there's articles written about it. So uh, maybe if we were to do this series again, Fast 9 would make it in here because uh, it is it, it kind of checks all the boxes. There's a boss. There's a baby. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think Vin Diesel kind of looks Vin like a big Diesel baby. Is Vin Diesel just a big baby? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think they have a baby even in the show. And and uh, in the show, I call all movies shows. And there's space. I mean, so I, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that uh, Tej and Roman uh, go up to uh, the same space station in Solaris. So they actually are, that's that's the tie-in. It's, uh, you know, you don't even realize that Justin Lin is working on so many levels here. If you're asking me, would I see Ludacris's Solaris? The answer is yes. I don't think I'd see Vin Diesel's Solaris. Amy, you just blew my mind. You saying Ludacris's Solaris, I'm in. Can we crowdfund that? <laughs> Justin Lin, can you get behind that? How about just Tej and Roman? That's, you know, get them both up there and both going through it. I mean, you, oh, this is a great remake. I like this a lot. You know, a lot of people have said Can that you say sh- Ludacris's Solaris like four times fast? Ludacris's Solaris. Ludacris's Solaris. Ludacris's Solaris. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, a lot of people were saying that we should do the Soderbergh Solaris, but I feel like that's an extracurricular activity for, uh, for you to enjoy at home uh, if you want to go down that path. Only because we have another two miniseries we want to get to. We can't just be staying in space. You know, we got to come down. We can't be uh, living on that island like that cosmonaut in the last movie. It's true, man. We got a lot to cover, and I have to figure out with a miniseries excuse that'll let us talk about the first Boss Baby. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't, just call another Audible. I'm in. I'm all <laughs> in on the BBU. All right, well, Amy, um, I think the uh, the queen alien said it best when she said, <laughs> The year is 1986. The Oprah Winfrey show debuts on TV, and Phantom of the Opera debuts on the West End. It's also the year that the Challenger space shuttle disintegrates 73 seconds after launching, killing all seven astronauts on board. A nuclear power station in the Ukraine explodes, causing the release of radioactive material across much of Europe. The Chernobyl disaster displaced hundreds of thousands of people and decimated the surrounding area. It's also revealed to the American public that the president's administration illegally sold weapons to Iran in order to fund the Contras. Smoking is banned in all U.S. public transport, and the popular movies are Top Gun, Platoon, Hoosiers, and today's film, Aliens. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me the stats. Aliens. It is written by James Cameron. It is written by James Cameron before the Terminator was even released. And then when the Terminator was released, it became a hit. The studio was like, okay, James Cameron, we're going to let you direct it too. We weren't sure about you. We thought you were a young upstart. But now you can direct Aliens. So Aliens picks up 57 years after the first film ends. That film, of course, ends with like Ripley and Jonesy. They get tucked themselves into the pod. Now they wake up in the pod and Ripley faces a scene that we have seen many times before in our space series, a skeptical inquisition, this time from the company, a.k.a. Wayland yutani And the company pressures her to go back to LV-426, the exomoon with the alien eggs that got her colleagues killed in the first place. 
Why? Because the company has moved a colony of human settlers there and the settlers have stopped answering their intergalactic cell phone. What makes this different than Alien is that Ripley is no longer with a bunch of like weak sauce biologists and mechanics. She's with the Marines. Especially my favorite Marines in this movie. You got Bill Paxton as the screaming, panicking Hudson and Jeanette Goldstein as the tougher the nails Vasquez. Josie has to stay home, but now instead of a cat, Ripley has a newt. That is the name of the orphan child that she befriends on the planet and must keep alive. Take a listen. For reasons unknown, the Nostromo set down on LV-426, an unsurveyed planet at that time, that it resumed its course and was subsequently set for self-destruct by you for reasons unknown. Not for reasons unknown. I told you. We sat down there on company orders to get this thing, which destroyed my crew and your expensive ship. The analysis team, which went over the lifeboat centimeter by centimeter, found no physical evidence of the creature you described. Good. That's because I blew it out of the goddamn airlock. Of course, there is one other special creature waiting for Ripley on LV-426, the alien queen. And yes, there will be a showdown. What makes the queen so powerful, you ask? Well... I think you can actually get in a bit of her essence, a bit of her energy that was captured in the song that was number one on the Billboard charts the weekend of July 18th when Aliens hit theaters. It is by Genesis and it's called Invisible Touch. Classic Genesis song. I love that song. I always have a soft spot in my heart uh, for Phil Collins because he is the only person uh, that my non-fandom of uh, got me into a fist fight. I said to a kid on a bus one time, I don't like Phil Collins, and he punched me in the face, cold cocked me in the face because I did not uh, see eye to eye with him. I was more of a Billy Joel guy, even though they don't really compete in my mind, there was room for only one, Bill or Billy, and I had to go with the piano man. And that kid, I am guessing, uh, grew up to be the lead in American Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Paul, something about your year effects really jumped out at me, which is the Challenger explosion. Because I'd never thought about this before, but I think there's a bit of a resemblance between Krista McCullough and, and, and Ripley. Maybe all the women of the 80s had that same hairdo, but I right, think yeah. they had the same hairdo. And I wonder if audiences were thinking about, like, Krista at all when they saw this movie, to see, like, you know, a woman in space who's brave and disaster struck. Like, Krista McCullough was such a huge deal to me. I was just a tiny kid, but I remember, like, hearing that name over and over and over and over again as, like, this amazing woman who is going to make the whole globe proud. It, uh, to have a film about a woman then in space, like coming out later on that year, a woman who I think bears a bit of a resemblance to her. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that. And I'm looking online right now and I see there's a, a few pieces of fan art that kind of connects the two of them. And they they definitely have a, a similar look. Um, 
you know, this movie, Aliens, I think last time we spoke, I was like, I think it's a superior film. I, I, I believe that Aliens is superior to Alien. And I have a hot take right at the start uh, about this, which is, I think I believed each film to be better than they actually are because they influence each other. Like, I don't know if I can separate these two films. Like, what I remember that I love about Aliens is still there, but I also kind of pull in what I love about Alien and vice versa. Like, I feel like it's a very interesting franchise, at least the way that I watch it, which was a kid who was older. They were both out on video. You watch them back to back. They felt like a real sandwich, like you were getting into it. So I was interested to see that this movie had some flaws that I never really saw before, made me kind of appreciate a lot of the things in Alien, but I I can't separate the two of them. I mean, I, we will in this podcast, but that is that is really something that I found truly interesting with these films that I haven't found so far with any sort of sequel. You know, I had the exact same emotional roller coaster because we were watching Alien And I was like, this film has such awe and such stillness and such majesty. But in my head, I was thinking, I think I prefer Aliens, though, because like the way that this movie, the sequel, like fills out the character of Ripley so much that, you know, Sigourney Weaver gets like a Best Actress nomination for this, which is wild for like a bloody genre action film that doesn't happen, you know? And I was thinking, you know, like this film doesn't have a lot of the benefits that the first Alien does. Like, yeah, you know what the alien looks like. You know what's going to happen. So it's more like, what does it do with it? Where does it go with it? With the military satire, with getting more into like the Weyland yutani Corporation. So I was thinking two weeks ago, like, yeah, Aliens is definitely the better film. Like, I mean, Aliens has seven Oscar noms, seven Oscar noms. That's crazy. That's a ton. And I was like, I think it's a lot more of a tense movie. I think it's more fun to watch. And then rewatching it, I was like. Oh, next to Alien, having just watched Alien again, the visual awe isn't here. The sense of dread and power. Yeah. And the, the Alien made me, even when I watch Alien now, having seen it a gazillion times, I feel like I'm getting slapped across the face. Like, whoa, what is this? This is something absolutely new and I'm stuck in my seat. And Aliens this, and this watch just felt more like a really good action film. And I was bummed out. I was like, I called an audible for this and now I don't know if I mean it. No, I'm glad that you called an audible for it because it was really fun to watch this movie in a way that I probably wouldn't have watched it. I think a lot of the times movies that I love just they just are flawless to me. I I love I love both of these films, but I definitely think that I've never critically looked at Alien. And I think looking at the way each film is presented, it's the same idea ultimately. Um and what each director is able to get from the similar concept is really indicative of where their careers go and who they are. I mean, this movie is without a doubt wonderfully directed. Like it really is everything that we know of Cameron, like they're pushing forward technology. The alien design is so much better. Ripley is fleshed out. I feel like the characters really pop. But what I was missing was that taut stillness, that um, that sweatiness, that kind of um, realism, if you will, of the first film. Um, yeah, the sense of the mystery of space. Like, what is outside this Earth? And to me, Aliens is more like, 
we have a sense it's going to be bad. Let's go take care of it. And there wasn't right. that moment of reflection of like, what are we doing off of Earth? What I love about this movie, like truly my favorite part of this movie is the first 45 minutes. The first 45 minutes, uh, which, you know, starts off in the uh, escape pod and then Ripley's reintegration into life and finding out that she has been asleep for 50 years and being put on trial. Like this opening feels very much in the style of what Ridley Scott set up. Like I feel like I love they get right into that body horror where she has a nightmare about the alien coming out of her chest, but they do that in a scene where they're also giving you exposition. So you're mixing exposition and nightmares and you're getting that jolt that you want. You know, everything is really built and layered so wonderfully in this movie. It, it's sort of a movie that I think like the up part of a roller coaster. Like I love the setup. And then once you get to the top, you're just going to be racing down and doing loops and it is fun. It's impressive. It's just not, it doesn't have as much weight. The rest of the movie doesn't have as much weight. Um, you know, maybe with the exception of the final uh, fight scene, like once they get the, uh, the the jump ship onto the main ship like i feel like then it kind of uh, goes back to that ridley scott like one-on-one i think there's an element there but uh yeah like i enjoyed the setup more than just a now we're here now we're here now we're here like impossible task impossible task impossible task it just felt like heightening 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 kind of i think what most action movies probably wrongly so have stolen from James Cameron. Like, you know, it just becomes uh set piece, set piece, set piece, set piece, set piece. And I don't know if you watched the director's cut or the, uh, the original cut. Did you watch? Did you watch? I the watched original? the original. I've been, I've been sticking with my OGs. Did you do director again? No, I did original because I thought I should watch original knowing that there's 12 minutes of additional scenes that I think, might have brought me over to the other side because I think in the in an effort to make a film really lean, and this is at the time this movie was made, they didn't want to make a two and a half hour movie. Now, like Fast and Furious 9 is like three hours. Uh, they really felt like cut all the exposition, get down to the action, action, action. They didn't even test this movie, so they didn't even know what was working or what wasn't working. And I think the movie ultimately works. It's a wild ride. It's like Rambo with a little bit more style and heart and amazing lead who is this this tremendous actress. So I think you really lean in and the side characters are just awesome. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, that's how I felt. I, I, I really like the world building of this movie. I mean, that's funny you call it Rambo because even at the time... As Sigourney Weaver was giving interviews where she was calling herself Rambina. She was like, I am Rambina in this movie. I'm grabbing my machine gun. And and truthfully, this analogy of a roller coaster, I think, is really appropriate. I mean, I think that's the analogy that James Cameron himself was kind of thinking. Because when he thought about doing Aliens, when he thought about doing the sequel, I mean, he was at a part in his career where he's not like a guy who's really in a position to say no. He's like a guy mm-hmm. at a position in his career where he's figuring out how to say yes and have it fit into who he thinks he can be. And he thought like, well, I'll just let him, I'll let, I'll let him explain. Like he was told by everybody that 
doing aliens was going to be a terrible idea. So here I am as, as this, you know, ridiculous fanboy turned director now wanting to do the sequel to, you know, Ridley Scott's, you know, much, much vaunted uh, alien film. And, and everybody tried to talk me out of it. They said, well, don't do that because, you know, anything that's good in your movie will be attributed to Ridley and anything that's bad will be attributed to you. It's a no win scenario. And I said, but yeah, but I really want to do it. It'll be cool. It was like this ridiculous, stupid thing. It wasn't, it wasn't strategic at all. But I knew it would be cool because what Ridley had set in motion was the creation of a world. And so from there, like figuring out how he could make aliens his own, he himself used this idea of a roller coaster. Like, how can I make this a fun ride? And so instead of looking at movies like Solaris, which has gone on to be like a huge touchstone for a lot of people, he went and looked instead at Indiana Jones. You know, he looked at these action movies that do feel like rides, and he tried to put that into this instead. So I guess in a way it does feel more like an Indiana Jones movie in space. You know what? I'm just thinking that because of all of the hissing, and I think I'm just thinking that because there's a time when one of the aliens jumps on Ripley's, like, space Batman tank, and the way that it swishes its tail sounds exactly like Indiana Jones's whip. Did you hear that? Here it is. I think then what we're talking about is the idea of here's a concept, people in space, these eggs, they jump in you, they get inside you. And yeah, how do two directors with two entirely different sensibilities shape it? And in a way, it makes me think of siblings. You know, like I'm an only child, but what I've always heard about how siblings work, like I'll use my own mother and her sister, for example, is that you kind of get told like, you're the smart one and you're the popular one. And you get this identity put on you that's built in contrast to the other sibling. So then you right. just sort of drill down further into the identity that you've been given. Like you don't have a chance to define your identity on its own. It's always an opposition to. That's Maybe really that's not fair, but that's, no. how, that's how I've kind of seen it from the outside. Well, it's interesting. I have two kids right now and it's something that I think about a lot. I, I, I was going to go to the idea that there's an element about the love that you give your kids. Like uh, my pediatrician told me this and I think about it all the time. You know, your first child, when they come, you're giving them 100% of your love. They are your main, uh, your focus. You have everything there. And then when your second child comes, uh, you're going to never give them 100% because you got to split, you know, you got to split the love. So say you even split it 50-50. Your second child only knows that 50% is your 100%. Whereas the first child is like, I am without 50%. Like, I feel like there's like this idea of like, and so from that point on, the older child is always coming from a place of like, not being as respected or not feeling like feeling without. And I do think there is something about these two films where the younger child gets all this acclaim, gets all this attention, makes, you know, launches James Cameron into this, you know, continues to launch him forward. This movie definitely seems like the movie that saves uh, Fox at the point. It comes out, it, it launches Sigourney Weaver into a, even a bigger role. It like, it gets more accolades, but I do think some of it is on the back of Ridley Scott's movie. Like, I think that Ridley Scott's movie is appreciated, but I think the ma- majority of people will watch James Cameron's Aliens over Ridley Scott's Alien. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that analogy really works. But where I was kind of also going with it is like, who would James Cameron be if he had been a filmmaker making this movie 
without feeling like he had to leave all of Ridley to Ridley. Like if he felt like he couldn't ape Ridley without getting made fun of, so he had to go out a completely different way. Like if he had to leave what Ridley did best to Ridley mm-hmm. and figure out his own version of what this story was because he didn't want to be compared to Ridley, how does that set him on a course? Like who would he be otherwise if not for this film? Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I do. I think it's a really interesting question. And I think the thing that separates these two directors just from looking at them is that Ridley Scott is really amazing at putting his stamp on someone else's work. And James Cameron is a director who can only make something from top to bottom. And so when he's writing this script, the script is so interesting and engaging and probably very different because Fox is trying so hard to make a sequel to Alien. You know, Sigourney Weaver is like, I'm not I'm not involved in this. I don't want to do this. They hire James Cameron to write this script and she's not even attached. So he has this, this kind of slate to do whatever he wants. Doesn't have to answer anyone. Doesn't have to sit down with anyone. Doesn't have to work with Ridley Scott. Like he got a canvas to make whatever he wanted. And I think that maybe the success of this and Terminator just said, you got the goods. Like, keep on doing this. Like, keep on making your own shit. Don't write a script that you won't direct. Don't direct a movie that you don't write. I feel like that may be the that may be this moment, this because Terminator is a success. This is a success. And now he knows, well, the secret of my success is writing, directing, doing the whole thing. It's got to be all me, baby. I mean, he does come from like a do everything world, right? Yeah. You know, like, I mean, he he gets his training on Corman sets, like his first like movie that he did, like the first thing he really did before. Uh, Terminator was what? Piranha 2? Well, you, I was going to say. You're the Piranha expert, so I'll let you speak to that. Well, I was going to speak to that and say that like his first foray was continuing somebody else's work. And to most people, including myself, Piranha 2 is an elevated film on whatever level you can make a schlocky piranha movie. Like he, <laughs> you can see elements there where he is not just trying to copy. I go back to something like Ganja and Hess, like, okay, make us a black exploitation uh, Dracula movie. And it's like, well, I'll make you this instead. And I think that he found a way to work within the parameter of what piranha was, but not just remake piranha. No, I think you're right. And getting that training from Corman, well, the way he puts it is like, if I need a light move, I move the light. You know, I'm not like, you go move the light. I mm-hmm. will just go ahead and move the light myself. Like, if if one of the people isn't painting a thing the way I feel like it needs to be painted, I'll just go paint it. Which is probably a way to also drive yourself insane and spend millions of years, like, making the same movie. Because, like, you only rely on yourself at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But he has, I think, like, a non-hierarchical do-it-yourself ethos that I'm not entirely sure that Ridley Scott doesn't have. Like, I feel like Ridley Scott maybe comes from a little bit more of a, please paint that and I will approve it. Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about that. Like his energy was, I mean, we talked about this in Blade Runner, like he's kind of a dick. He came off of these like big time commercials and he was not someone who comes up in the world of let's make a movie. Like let's, and, and, and going back to our, our conversation last week, you look at somebody like, um, John Carpenter, who is also making the thing, but has that kind of same ethos. It's like these directors, all these directors are these like, like getting in, like getting down and dirty. Like, I mean, whether it's John Carpenter making the music, you know, and figuring out all these little details, writing, really thinking about these things. Like, I feel like this is the, the age or a dawning of this age of a, 
a pop culture or a popcorn film having like auteur energy behind it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you can picture James Cameron working on a huge film like this, a huge leap up for him in terms of budget, but also being like, I'll paint that wall. There is mm-hmm. kind of a scruffy indie energy to it, I guess. And, I mean, yeah. I mean, we see it in Titanic, too. He's in the water. Yeah. He, I mean, years later, in the water, like, I'm going to get wet, too. Like, he, I want to hold the camera. I think Michael Bay has that same energy. Like, give yeah. it to me. Like, let me get in there. Like, it's Let like, me design my own sub and go to the bottom of the earth. Like, yeah. I, this is why I like him. And there is something about the way that he operates and the quality of the products that he makes that make me really be a Cameron defender. It sounds weird to feel like I get defensive about defending the guy who has made the most successful movies of all time. And I think it's interesting that, you know, from everything that Ridley's ever said, when the idea of doing an Alien sequel came up, nobody asked him if he wanted to do it. Nobody was like, hey, Ridley, do you want to come back? That people just didn't, maybe they didn't want to work with him again. I'm not sure what it was, but he was never even in the conversation of what a sequel would be if it existed. Do you believe that story about how when they floated the idea to Cameron, he was like, well, here's my pitch. And he wrote alien on a chalkboard and then he added an S and then he drew dollar signs through the S and he was like, I am done. This is what we can make together. Yes. And I said that to a very successful, famous person and they looked at me and they said, that's not a true story, but it's a great story to tell. And <laughs> I, uh, and so I felt like I learned my lesson that uh, this person does know James Cameron. And I like the legend of that. Um because it seems so simple. I mean, it seems like what the movie is, right? Like, it really does feel like, okay, yeah, let's not remake it. Like, let's more, bigger, better. It's the secret of sequels. This is where this movie at points falls flat for me. And I'll tell you, and I do love it. We're talking about, like, a, a movie that I really do enjoy. Like, I think, I'm, I think I've lowered my, my love of both of these movies a little bit, but they've evened out, too. So, I, I like... Alien kind of went up, but kind of went down and uh, in some areas and, and the same thing with aliens, like up and down in different areas. But to me, watching this film, I go, I know Ripley from number one. Then in number two, he really takes the save the cat and moves it over to this young girl. And that didn't seem to me like a quintessential part of Ripley. And then when I watch the deleted scenes, I see this moment. And it's the moment that Sigourney Weaver really loved about this script and that he edited it out, which is when she gets home and she's reacclimating, they reveal to her that her daughter just died two years ago. So now we reveal that this woman that we know in space, a space trucker or whatever she is, she had a daughter back home and probably a young daughter. And when she comes back home, the daughter is dead. And so it, to me, it makes the Newt relationship so much more rich. But to James Cameron, you're going to leave that chunk on the floor, on the editing room floor. Like, this is the reason why Sigourney Weaver signs on. This is the reason why we are invested in the story. Instead, it, it just becomes like, oh, this is like, she just cares about this little kid. But there's so much darkness and emotional depth there that I think that is shaved that is a detriment to the film. And I think that that's kind of the part of Jim Cameron I don't like. The cutting corners, like, we don't need that. Ah. And where to me that adds so much more dimension, it makes that whole plot line just 
oof, come to life. Well, let's listen to that scene. Administration, insurance company guys. You Do you know. have any news about my daughter? Well, we did come up with some information. Why don't we sit down? I was hoping to wait until after the inquest. Um, Amanda Ripley McLaren, married name, I guess, age 66. And that was at the time of her death, which was two years ago. I'm real sorry. I promised her that I'd be home for her birthday. Her 11th birthday. <laughs> and now I will say that I disagree. I'm glad this is really? gone. Yeah. Why? I don't feel like I really need that to care about Ripley still. Like the idea of retrofitting that character in Alien... And thinking she's trying to get home and save the cat to get to her daughter doesn't make the movie any better for me. Like, I care about her as she is. Like, daughter doesn't add anything. And here, knowing she lost a daughter, it feels like a pity ploy that I also don't need. I already really care about her. I really like her. I don't need this to understand why she would care about a little kid. Because then I think it becomes less about, like, I... I want to replace the daughter that I lost. I must like fill the void of the daughter that I don't have. And it just becomes about a woman who saw some awful stuff and doesn't want anybody else to have to go through it. You know, like she right. just wants to keep people in general from seeing what she seeing what she had to. And- but she risks everybody or she risks people's lives where she didn't do that in the first movie for this girl. This, she did it now, for the I- cat. The cat who is oh, still a oh, jerk. The cat is well, still missing. Listen to this yes. cat. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare. Okay. Well, I like that they didn't make Jones nicer. He's like, no, uh, you still yeah. be a jerk. I just feel like what I love about this movie is she doesn't want to go back. She is hesitant. She, the reason why she goes back is because, and look, we also cut out this great sequence where they give her the verdict. Like you, your license is stripped. And they do this, like cut to where, I never quite understood how much time passed. And now I'm like, oh, a significant amount of time passes from that like little room trial to when she's in that apartment. Like I think yeah, when I watched it. You only it, know that through inference because it feels like the next day. Exactly. And like they make up this thing like, oh, yeah, she works in like a, a warehouse. I guess what I love is that this person who wants to keep everybody safe, who wants to get out of there, who is just trying to, you know, stay alive and not selfishly. She's always like she takes that truck and she drives into the, you know, that area where they first have their encounter with the aliens. Um, you know, she's a hero, absolutely. But I think she becomes selfish to save the girl and I think part of her psyche, it's an interesting part of her psyche to see what she's doing there. And I mean, look, they they literally have the young girl Newt call her mommy at the end and not to say that you can just replace kids are going to replace their parents because, you know, I, there's a lot of complicated things there. But I think what I like is 
she goes against her own judgment because she is not totally well. It's not it's it's a little bit more selfish, which I think makes her a little bit more complicated is what I'm saying. That's how I feel about her saving the cat. But yes, wait, I want you to tell me to my face that you would let Newt die. No, I wouldn't let Newt die. But like you're in a world where everyone is being killed, right? Everyone like everyone is being killed and everyone has been killed. And when Newt is taken, there is no guarantee that A, she's not dead. There's no reason why. First of all, there's some logic holes that we have to jump through here. Like, why isn't she killed? I mean, they seem like even when they, you know, scoop up people, they get them wrapped up in this cocoon. I don't understand the co- how the cocoons work or the it's cool looking. And by the way, baller move on James Cameron to be like, uh, you know, uh, Giger, you're not coming back here. We're, we'll do it differently. Like, he's like, it's going to be too weird. I'll design my own, uh, you know, queen alien, which is pretty cool. Very Independence Day, which... I, or I should say Independence Day ripped off this movie. But um It's got those big birthing hips. I feel like the Queen Alien doesn't move that gracefully. Whenever the Queen no, not gracefully yeah. realistically. When no, it it's, climbs it's, up and down holes and walks, it it's really there's no gravity to the steps. It's very skeletal. Yeah. Uh versus like I think the other ones feel more like snake like. But anyway Yeah. Well, but uh, I do like how she has that Queen Elizabeth headdress. Oh, you, when yeah. you first oh, see her, yeah. she's got all yeah, the spike yeah. on spikes on spikes. She's basically just like an ancient portrait of Queen Elizabeth. Like, hello, it is me. You welcome and, to my throne. And I do love, like, I like. There's so much that I love about it, but I think there's no reason why why Newt is any different. And we've seen her time and time again say, "Don't go there. They're dead already." Like when that one moment, like we got to go back. We got to go back. And she's like, "They're dead. They're dead." Yeah. But I mean, yeah, Newt what, out Ripley's Ripley. That's the thing. Newt is right. more Ripley than Ripley is at this point. Because Newt is like... That's a sequel. Unflappable. Newt. Not, yeah. you know, not even that scared, really. Like, Newt... A, oh, okay. Fine. You would kill Newt. That's fine. I understand. No, I, I, I would I wanna, be fine I wanna, if Newt also died, though. Because I'm not that in, I'm not that into Newt, honestly. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not that into Newt either. But I think Newt gives you more... Or you understand that connect. I'm not saying that any character wants a child to die. And I understand that she wants to protect her. But there is acting choices being made that if you go, she is mourning the loss of her daughter. You see that why that connection is so intense. You see why she's such. Don't come at at me for this. Two full grown sons and you'd save Newt. So I don't know why she has to lose a daughter to want to save Newt. Well, I guess what I'm saying is what I like about her is you see this other side of her like I didn't know that she was a mother and to know that and to see how she takes care of a child like she does take care of that child really well and I think that's like whether it's them together in that room when they're going to sleep the way that she is immediately brought in I just think it like speaks to a scarred psyche and we talked about this idea of loss right this whole movie is about loss and the first movie she's looking at all of her her friends who died, she survived. There's a guilt there. Then she comes back to earth and it's like, oh, by the way, it's been 57 years and your daughter is also dead. And like, and what else is that? What else does that mean for you? Like, I just that think it just picture adds of the daughter they it. show, by the way, is actually Sigourney's real mom. That's what they look like. Oh, they wow. showed Sigourney a picture of her actual mom to be oh, like, wow. this is your old dead daughter. I mean, and again, like, I'm not saying that like a person without kids wouldn't have those instincts. I just find it to be a lot more interesting, especially because it was something that was a part of the movie that I don't think cheapens it. I, I think, sorry, and I'll make this my last point on this. 
I think without context, it feels cloying. It feels like we got to save the kid. Whereas the first movie, the cat is like an interesting quirk. And this goes while she, all right, everything is doubled in this movie. So she saves a cat in the first movie. She'll save a kid in this movie, you know? And what I like about, what I like about the, it is, it just adds a little bit more drama. It adds, why would she risk everything to save this kid? Everything. When see, in a world where other kids are dying and other people are dying and everyone is but everyone is innocent, dead. she can't do anything about it. Like, but she doesn't know that that Nude is alive. Like, what's the chances that Nude is alive in that room? Why is Nude alive in that room? Well, we've seen that they like are keeping people alive long enough that they're alive as they're harboring eggs. We have, yeah, we but as they basically just they had deleted the Dallas scene in the first movie. But by so, the way, they just rip it off in this movie. They do yeah. the same exact scene, and she and says like, it well, in the first scene. It the first time, I know, so but I guess. But, but I think it's she be more wrapped cloying if her wall? daughter did die. I think if her daughter is dead, then I find it more cloying. But why not come back to... Okay, I guess what I'm missing is you bring her back to this world and you go, 57 years have passed, but we have no emotional connection to those 57 years. Like, there's no like, oh, and your apartment's gone and your friends are dead and there's no talk of... There's no emotionality to that 57 years. The only emotionality that she has is being fucking scared of a big alien. And I think that's what I'm missing in this movie because it's such a great, rich area to play in. Like, she's got no one. She's alone. So you're saying that you would like it better if we had another scene or two at the beginning kind of carrying that beat? Because I'm actually with you on this. Like, if she's been gone 57 years, the world would be radically different. Like, she yeah. wouldn't recognize. She doesn't quite recognize the building, but she I don't think she'd recognize the culture, some of the language. Right. She wouldn't recognize anything, and she'd be a lot more displaced. And if she's that much more displaced, it makes it more re- reasonable that she would just be like, well, whatever. I'll just, like, run forward with this. I have nothing keeping me here. And we don't feel that, because you're right. They do skip too fast. I don't need a dead daughter to that. I also want to know, though, like, how is it for Jones? Because, like, sure, ah. she's been gone 57 years in human years. In cat years, I looked this up, that's 276 years. Well, 276 I mean, like- years. Like, poor Jones. What's he up to? And she leaves him there alone? You know, I, I think you're, like, this movie uh, really doesn't give Jones enough to do. And, uh, and you know, and I would imagine that you know, you know, what about Jones's family? Jones's chew toys. There's all the things that Jones has to get into now. The apartment's different. Did you live in an apartment? I mean, all his canned food is definitely expired. I, you like, know, what litter I, boxes are probably so much more high tech than he remembers. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is maybe he likes it. I don't know. I don't know enough about Jones. Again, I don't know enough. Okay, though. So just to sort of kind of put a bow on what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You feel like you want more trauma in Ellen before we go forth, right? Before we go forth and see what she does. Well, and yes. I am with you. And it, you know, I think part of what it is that I have to unpack when I watch this is before I ever saw Aliens, it was told to me as like the Ripley is a strong female character badass movie. And so even the first time I watched this and probably the second or third, I was like watching it with the Ripley's a badass movie. And it has taken me several watches to add that layer of trauma to it more Mm. so because, yeah, yeah, she has the nightmares. I kind of zone out on nightmare stuff in movies because to me, nightmares is just a way to get cool shit in and then take it back. And so I get a little bit restless with nightmares in movies. 
But the framework of the nightmare, he really does try to establish here that it's all about can she go to sleep at the end and can Newt go to sleep? Is sleep a safe right. place to be? When I watch this movie through the clear framework of like Ripley is traumatized and not making sense, then I do like it a lot better. But it is like such a different movie. It's interesting. I was like going back and watching um, old interviews with Sigourney Weaver when it came out. And almost every single interview with her in 1986 is kind of the same. It's like, hey, Sigourney, what's it like playing a strong female character? And in each case, she's like, that's not how I see her. And she keeps trying to readjust this definition, even at the time. I mean, here, this is this is an interview with her from 1986. She's not strong in the beginning in a way she's She's a character out of time, and she's, I think, um, battle-weary, and she's disillusioned, and she's burned out. And the fact that it's because, really, of a... Reluctantly, and against her better judgment, she's pulled back into a situation where she has to take over again. I, I could feel her mental exhaustion, in a way. I could feel her forcing herself to do it, and it's really because of this little girl that she does it, mm-hmm. but she she's not anymore that same kind of rational, go-getter, eager beaver uh, that she was in the first movie. All that is gone. It's really been killed off. And I like that. Like, it's the weakness, I think, that makes Sigourney agree to do this film. The idea that Ripley is a really complicated character and not just, like, a superhuman badass who kills people in high heels, which is what no. we're still getting. And people Absolutely. are still saying it's inspired by Ripley. And it has never been what Ripley is all about. The the coolest moment or her coolest like badass moment is really her preparation to go into the 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 egg room, right? Like it's like she's in the elevator, she wipes the sweat from her face, she checks the gun, she does everything. Um, she's a survivor, right? That's what's interesting about her. She is a smart survivor. Um there's a couple things. I guess just I, I know you put a bow on it, but I'm going to now put a, gonna a two and I'm going to just put a two and from sticker next okay. to your bow and say, and again, I don't know if adding the kid is the right choice, but I think the way that this movie frames it is, well, I have a shitty job, and if I do this mission, I'll get reinstated as a pilot, and that will be good. Like like it's. As if no time has passed, right? It would be as if they found her a week later, right? Her motivation doesn't seem to be like, fuck it. I've lost everything, so why not go? Her motivation seems to be like, well, I'll get my pilot license back. You know, it's it, it's like it's a little too simplistic for me, ultimately, for a character that I think is beautifully drawn and amazingly acted through the use of trauma and sleep and all this sort of stuff. It's sort of like that thing where she's like, I'll go. I work in a fucking factory. I'll go. You know, and I think the only reason why they even give you the factory line is to put her in the suit at the end. You know, they like they need to put her in the suit. So if they can't, you know, if they can't establish these things, like those, it's exposition, not emotion. And I think that uh, where I didn't know that much about the other characters in the first movie I understood where they were coming from and here I, I and there's a little bit more raw emotion and here it's a little bit more logical. And I feel like that's maybe a James Cameron trope. It's like, I say I love you, so I love you, but we're not like seeing that we love you. Like I think that there's like a simplicity to his decisions and emotions. That and I think they go down very easy when you watch them because it's like popcorn kind of a fun thing. But I think sometimes on further inspection you're like, oh, it's symbolic. It's it's not like it's not as earned. I don't know. 
No, in a way that almost seems like it says more about Cameron himself. Like to Cameron, right. the idea of not getting to do the job that he wants to do would kill him. And he mm-hmm. would do anything to be able to do the job that he wants to do again. Like, right. don't don't put me in the cargo hold. Don't make me shoot Piranha 3. I'm James Cameron. Like, I want more than that. And with Ripley, I feel like there's an argument that she maybe never wants to go to space again. Are you kidding me? What has she just been through? Absolutely like, let me stay not. here with yeah. my cheeseburgers. I've been through a lot. Let me hug my cat. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that's what makes the movie interesting. We've seen... You know, these movies are the blueprint for so many things. You know, they are the blueprint for how we look at action. It's, you know, let's talk about John Wick for a second. You know, John Wick's uh, wife is dead and they, you know, they they murder his dog and he has to go and kill everybody, right? Like there's this idea, like he makes these decisions in the moment, even at the end of, uh, was it John Wick 2, where he, you know, not I won't spoil it, but he makes a very emotional decision and i think that that would that's what besides all the amazing fights and all the beautiful choreography and you know camera work it's it is there's an emotionality that we can get behind with john wick that i think is a little bit more vacant here but i think that sigourney weaver is playing it versus it being in the script so i think it that's why this movie i think really succeeds i think that we really are we're mixing and matching elements of Ripley for both movies. We're mixing and matching elements of the alien culture from both movies. Because in this movie, too, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll argue that the thing that's so scary about the fucking first movie is that you, when you try to kill this alien, they bleed acid. And that is so not present here, except for like one scene, like when uh, Michael Bean gets like acid on his like armor. Like, yeah, and fucking, when uh, Vasquez gets her leg hurt. Oh, right. Yeah. It's so like, like they would be bleeding through the floors, like aliens would be coming, like this whole place would be melting to the ground with the amount, like, so just say like, all right, they're not getting acid on them. Fine. I'll buy that. But the aliens would be just melting the whole station. Remember like that one drop went like five floors in that one ship. Well, okay. Yeah. I want to talk about this with you. Do the aliens suck in this movie because they kind of do you machine gun them and they're gone like they don't feel as intimidating as the one alien in the first movie the one alien in the first movie did so much damage and it was impossible to kill and yes they weren't able to like shoot it but here they're they kind of get just mowed down they're tons of them exist they just die and they don't seem as terrifying to me they don't move as terrifyingly to me they're just, yeah, they're just there to be a video game. I think that they are more terrifying in their look. I don't think that they're more terrifying in their kills. And we walk this line. And they're line. terrifying in the aggregate that there's so many coming yes. at you, all of yes. the blips, all of the bleeps. But do you think, what do you think about the fact that the aliens seem smarter? Like I that was they're just turning off this. the power? They know they're how to getting into elevators? Yeah, getting into an elevator? What? I mean, what is the getting into an elevator? Well, I was thinking about this movie and watching it and going, oh, shit. Like, unbeknownst to him, or maybe beknownst to him, is that a word, beknownst? Steven Spielberg ripped off aliens. Jurassic Park is aliens. Mm-hmm. Like, I was watching this this time and going, oh, this is just Jurassic Park. And 
it, the smartness of the velociraptors and opening up door handles and chasing them down like that's a and it's also many of these things and being in a strange land and it, and there's a kid and it's how do we escape this place and how do we get out of here and there's smart people uh I was really looking at the comparisons there and I was kind of floored by it. I was like, wow, okay. And look, that's a Michael Crichton novel. So Michael Crichton, do you imagine he's influenced by all this? Sure. Is anything where you escape an island full of something like aliens? Sure. But uh, I couldn't help but see that with the like the Velociraptor stuff because there's like this weird moment in the end when Sigourney Weaver is like in the egg room and um, that one alien kind of like, peers in and goes, eh, I'll leave you to be. And like kind of like ducks out. I'm like, the fuck is this? Like, these are like ferocious aliens. Wouldn't they just like, rah, like just run right across? Like there's a lot of like, well, that's the power of the queen. The queen is being like, I'm in charge here. Don't eat her. Cause if you eat her, she's going to flamethrower my eggs. Cause they, they have that eye contact and Ripley's right. like, you know, I got a flamethrower. And then the queen's like, back off. She just kind of like, they'll back off right. to the other I, one. It just felt like I I get that, but I also felt like it comes so late, like it comes so like, huh? Yeah. And if you're producing this many fucking eggs and you need human people to look at, I'm like, who cares? If you really, I mean, why do you need this many eggs? Like, like what 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 is the purpose of it? Because really, one face hugger, uh, I guess one face hugger makes one alien i don't know i mean why do you need 150 eggs like there's a there's too many eggs there in the first movie there's too many eggs like All right they killed too many people they weren't tactical about it they killed too many people to give birth eggs so the eggs don't pop open until like, you look at it so the eggs are just like waiting to be looked at they're like right. like a they wannabe need... instagram influencer they're like you gotta look at me and then i'll well, come to life they just feel the effect of human eyes yeah they 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 are reacting to like they need a host right mm-hmm. and if there's no hosts why do you need that many eggs like what's the world in which you know after one person goes down there and gets something attached to their face that you'd be like okay keep on looking to the other eggs let's see like i mean you know like there is something about it that is cool visually but makes no fucking sense it's like she needs four eggs max but like but yet the queen is like, these are my babies. Like she's reacting like, these are my babies. And I feel like the agreement is like, I'll let you have your baby and you let me have my babies. And that's what we're going to do. And, and yet Ripley is like, well, screw that. Is it yeah. low in that case that Ripley takes it back immediately? And she's like, I'm burning your babies. Ha-ha, yeah, I think you? it's, I, I think that makes her an unlikable character because they had a truce and she, she blocked the truce because the truth is They'll nuke that planet eventually, I'm sure. But, like, she wanted to see those babies die. So, uh, and, look, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not rallying for, uh, for alien babies. But uh, it felt, like, very vindictive. And it felt like she was getting payback, which I like for a character. But I also felt like, hey, Queen was being cool. The and Queen was being kind of cool. And the, I'm torn on this because... I like the idea that the alien in the first movie is just a completely different animal species that has no relationship Mm -hmm. to anything we know. Like, it exists outside of the realm of human understanding. And so for these aliens to be like, I don't take the stairs, I take an elevator. You know, like... I know. It's a little bit... Getting on the elevator was weird. I don't like them being too close to us. I hated the elevator moment. I hated it. 
Yeah, it was very much like, do you know who I am? I am a diva. Like, uh, these shoes I, do not go upstairs. It just felt like, like, okay, like, it just, it felt too smart. Whereas, like, the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park, like, they're turning door handles, which makes sense. How do I get out? Okay, like this. But they're not, like, you know, they're not, like, making a sandwich in that kitchen. I will say one of the things I love, another great performance and another great written performance is uh, Paul Reiser in this movie. I think Mm -hmm. Paul Reiser walks an amazing line of what this company stands for. And I think especially now in in the world that we live in, this idea of... I'm your best friend, but is uh, actually evil. And the way that he plays it and the way that he was cast. um, Yeah, to be such a kindly guy, not like mm -hmm. I'm a cold businessman, but to be a soft boy businessman. Yeah. And and you feel like and I think I remember the first time I saw this film, you know, that turn was like, oh, shit, you know, and and it's a beautiful turn because he's a guy who you see in all these other things, you know, as a comedian and he's playing this like gentle, like you want to lean in and trust him. And like when you find out fleece vest, the international sign of I won't hurt you Ah. unless you're a deer, I guess. But. Yeah, like that. He has that showdown scene where it's really revealed that he's evil. Mm-hmm. Um, the one where Ripley's like, "Bill me." I want to yeah. play that scene because I kept thinking, like, "Oh my god!" I just feel like watching Paul Reiser in this movie is like watching any corporation on Twitter in the last couple of years. Where like, I see you, I hear you, I also care about rights. Let me use the language of like positivity Nabisco and activism. Black Lives Matter. You know, exactly. like, wait, what? Okay, when, yeah. When he's like. Do you want to have the extermination of a species to reframe the argument in these like corporate positive terms? It yeah. chilled me. I want to listen to it. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Fucking A. Oh, hold on, hold on one second. This installation has a substantial dollar value attached to it. They can bill me. Okay, look. This is an emotional moment for all of us, okay? I know that. But let's not make snap judgments, please. This is clearly, clearly an important species we're dealing with, and I don't think that you or I or anybody has the right to arbitrarily exterminate them. Come on. Yeah, watch us. Hey, maybe you haven't been keeping up on current events, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. Look, I'm not blind to what's going on, but I cannot authorize that kind of action. I'm sorry. Well, I believe Corporal Hicks has authority here. Corporal Hicks's. This operation is under military jurisdiction, and Hicks is next in chain of command. My right, Corporal? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Look, Ripley, this is a multi-million dollar installation, okay? He can't make that kind of decision. He's just a grunt. I... No offense. None taken. Pharaoh, do you copy? Standing by. Prep for dust off. We're going to need immediate evac. Roger. On our way. I say we take off, nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. I, I love that. And I think that what James Cameron does here that I think is really a masterstroke is continuing that story. And, you know, this idea that James Cameron wrote like the first you know, maybe 60 or 70 pages of this before uh, he went off to go uh, direct Terminator. 
and then he came back to finish his script. I understand why a Fox executive waited for him because that first 60 pages, like you're paying off on all the stuff that you want from an alien movie. Like he's continuing these stories. And I wonder if maybe coming back after directing Terminator, he changes a perspective a little bit. He goes, all right, maybe, you know, because it, it, it does feel a little bit more grounded in that first part for the ride of the second part. Um, but I feel like there's all these like really nice little strokes, a lot of them getting cut out uh, because in this version, the director's the director's version has a moment where Ripley and Michael Bean like share their first name. They go, I'm so-and-so, I'm Ellen, or, you know, and uh, I'm whatever his first name is. But uh, you know, like the, those like little Dwayne. moments. his name Dwayne. is Dwayne. So I feel like you get these, like, they were shot, they were there, but I feel like maybe this energy of like seeing how Terminator did and knowing what people wanted, he leaned a little bit more into the popcorn. Maybe he... he he maybe that's his instinct already. I don't know. There's something interesting there though because it's everything like he got he, confidence that he could do the action, right? Yeah, like he was like yeah. using his full cerebral energy to come up with reasons for the story to exist, and then he got confident he could do explosions, and he was like, "Cool, I can do both." Because once once they land, the movie doesn't stop. I mean, uh, you know, which is a silly thing to say, but it's like there's no more story. Once they land, there's no more story, and I think that that maybe that's what we're reacting to is you're relying a little bit on the story of the first movie to carry you through the story of the second movie. We already know what's going on. We already are, we're already in line for it. We don't need you to set up anything because we, the audience, are on board. We're in, we literally are Ripley's POV. Like, we get it. Whereas if, yeah. the, if this movie we're stand, stood by... We're literally in POV going down the stairs at one point. Yeah. And if you stood, if you stand... Like, if this movie stands alone, I don't know if it's as successful only because the baggage of everything. Like, I think that's why we're able to get away with it. Like, we understand, like, the the quickness of it, the fast, like, uh, nature of how they have to kill everybody because we know it will happen. We know it will happen. I mean, meanwhile, Ripley, when she does give that speech to the Marines, doesn't give them any of the the real highlights, like acid for blood, this, don't do that, don't do that. She doesn't give, like, the gremlin rules. They basically say, watch your tape. She explains it on the tape. So as an audience, like a film audience, and I mean, she mentions it a little bit in that trial scene. We don't even know. Like, we're just saying, like, you better watch the first one because really that's where it is. You know, like, we don't, he doesn't even set up the queen. He set up the queen in the director's cup, but not in this. Well, then here's the thing about the aliens that I'm curious about, because we're told over and over again that the company wants these aliens because they are master predators. And I will say, I think um, Paul Reiser's idea of, like, secretly burying alien fetuses inside Newt and Ellen is, like, absolutely gobsmackingly chilling. Like, one of the more horrific things a villain has ever said to do in that they don't back away from the language of, like, embryos in fetuses makes me, as a woman living in America at this point, just, like, curl up and die because it all feels very, very real. Um, But that said, for as much as these aliens are supposed to be super predators— we talked about this. They don't seem to be that, that great in this movie. So are the aliens truly the perfect biological weapons that the company thinks they are? Or is it just that humans are such a disaster that because we always have traitors inside our ranks and we can't get it together and our leaders aren't that strong again, which is what we have here, that we are just not capable of fighting them back? Like, would the aliens be beating us if humans didn't seem to have so many flaws? Well, okay. Whew. 
I don't know how to answer that question because I can't think of this movie without thinking about Predator now, too. And, like, they <laughs> are the ultimate hunter. And they're, like, these creatures seem like a race that wants to populate and take over, right? It's like a virus. The aliens are like a virus. I don't think that they are hunters. I think they are like, we spread and we need these things to spread. Like, I don't think they have, it it doesn't matter who they're coming in contact with. It's like, we are, you know, they are, they are just basically. the coronavirus isn't like, how do I get over there with those people? Yes, I want to stay alive. Oh, I can go there too. Oh, I can go there too. Oh, I want to mutate here. That's, that's what I think. And and I feel like that's what makes them a little bit different. Like, I feel like so we can go and draw that to the end where the, you know, the queen alien is cognizant enough to be like, oh, you're going to stop my total, uh, you know, not devastation, but total, yeah. uh, you know, uh, takeover. But again, because they're not looking for a way off the planet. Like, you don't get the sense that the aliens are looking for a way off the planet. Like, even though they are chasing Ripley, the queen at the end is just like, I want to kill Ripley. It wasn't like, I want to go to Earth. Right. And I I think the same thing for the alien and alien. It's not like I want to stow away because I want to get to Earth and then take over Earth. It's I want to survive. I want to spread. I need to find another host. I need to, like, populate this thing because, you know, it's it's I don't think that there's any knowledge of it because truthfully, those aliens on that planet for 57 years didn't do shit. They didn't move. They didn't expand. They didn't do anything. They just died out because there was no one there to put their face in an egg. You know, like they, are, they like, are. Hey, egg, what's up? You're sexy. And eggs. Like, yeah. Oh, so they're. Hi. Whereas like the predators would be going from planet to planet to find another thing to kill. Like the I predators mean, are hunters. Yeah. These are. This is a virus. Well, like the aliens aren't doing anything different than the humans are doing. The aliens are there to lay their eggs and get the planet ready for whoever comes by. And the humans are there just to terraform and also get the planet ready for whenever life can come by there. They're just doing the same thing. Like, we're colonists, we're populating this, we're making right. it workable okay. Yeah, for us. sure, sure. It's the same thing. It's more just that we don't like them because they put embryos in us, which is a fair point. But are they really that different? There are groups of people that will go somewhere like missionaries. And mm-hmm. try to convert a population. That to me is like aliens. Let me get one person in, let me build, 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 and take over. In this sense, the terraforming of a dead planet, there is nothing there, and they're making it livable and breathable for humans. It wasn't like go to this planet, eradicate all the living things, and then we're going to take over. Where the aliens are, let's, you know, the aliens' life cycle is about killing and making them in the image of us. Whereas what we see in this movie is humans going there to be like, let's find a place to live. And they're not there to do anything. It's a dead planet. Great opportunity for us to, Mm -hmm. uh, to bring people there and, and have a better quality of life, not at the expense of anything. Well, but what if the, what if the aliens just see us like cobs of corn or chickens or something? I mean, look, I, I look at the same time, you're right. I mean, sure, that like they need to feed on us. But if I eat chicken, I don't become a chicken, right? Or if I eat corn, That's I don't not become what I a heard corn. From uh, Back to the Future, man. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, like the aliens, like are they want you to become them? They're not like they're not like enslaving anyone. They're just basically sucking you dry. It's like the Matrix. Like they're just like they are 
you're furthering them. If I eat a piece of corn, I don't implant myself in that piece of corn, you know? Uh, and it's like, yes, that's feeding off the land. And oh. that's what, and that's, I mean, and yeah, I hear what you're saying. Then that's what the humans are doing. Now I'm going on feeding. a rabbit hole about how, like, how we have such biodiversity is that animals did eat the corn and then they like pooped it out and then it grew more corn. Yeah. So in a way, the corn is treating a cow like an animal, like, or like an alien. I mean, all I'll say this, I don't think of the aliens as killing machines. And I think that that's what this has become. It's way more interesting to me to be like, there's a bear loose on our ship, you know, but the bear can't be killed. Like, you know, then, then there's a super smart, intelligent creature. It's like, no, this is a creature that has evolved to avoid becoming extinct. And I think that we've seen that in our, our history, like how animals evolve. These creatures evolve not to be warriors is like their blood is acid to save them from attack. I think why I'm thinking about this is because the third film we were talking about doing, and I won't call an audible. I promise I was tempted with starship troopers because we were thinking about the films that we could do that cover this niche of like man confronting alien and everything goes to hell. Right. And watching this, I was really struck thinking about starship troopers again, because starship troopers, of course, if you haven't seen it, is like a bunch of Marines fight these bugs on alien planets. And then towards the end of the film, you're like, are we the bad guys? Like, are the bugs that bad? Like, who's really the aggressor here? And so with that framework in mind, watching this, you know, the fact that the Marines here are calling these people bugs. So they're like, we're going on a bug hunt that they have like the bug stamping Mm -hmm. stickers on all of their equipment. I was thinking to myself like, oh, this like aliens is kind of a transitional film between the politics of starship troopers and the politics of aliens. Like it's kind of easing you from one to the other. And then I heard that actually, while they were shooting this film, James Cameron made everybody in the cast read the book starship troopers, that that was like really actively on his mind too. Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? And like, and now I feel like I'm going down this path where I was like, okay, well, alien was good, but I feel like Aliens has more of the stuff I want to talk about. And now that we've watched Aliens, I'm like, well, Aliens is good, but I think Starship Troopers has more of the stuff that I want to talk about. I mean, well, Starship Troopers definitely has much more of a, um, you know, the jingoistic capitalism, the war is good, like all that, like, uh, rah, rah, like all the stuff that I think is so relevant to the world that we live in right now. I feel like Starship Troopers is that movie because it is, uh, it is a satire and yeah. it is, you, you know, and, it, and um, where this is not a satire, this is, I mean, at, you look at these two movies and they are just the same movie, just bigger, just bigger. Um, it still has humanity to it. I think that the side characters here are uh, a little bit more well-defined, but maybe it's because I just like Vasquez and Bill Paxson. I know, and, you I really know, Michael, like Vasquez and Bill Paxson. I, I do too, and I think Michael Bean is great. I think that the leader of the uh, the guy with the smokes the cigar is great. I love, love, I mean, actually, you know what? I'm not going to say I think. I know that all these characters are great. I think that um, the the guy who plays the robot, and I'm forgetting, Lance Henriksen, Lance Henriksen. is yeah. amazing and creepy, but yet would loving. You- it's great. Would you call the things in his face, those lines? Would you call those dimples? You know how he has those lines in his face? Kind of like oh, yeah. how, uh, oh, uh, the actor who rhymes with Schmevin Schmacy, like he has the same ones. Like, are those dimples? Yeah. I don't know what they were. They would be called. I don't live in that world to, to, to even prob- um, like offer up an opinion there. But I like him. And I like how Ripley is bigoted towards... Yeah. Uh, Yes. towards robots at the beginning and kind of comes around on him. I think that 
I like that character and I like their dynamic a lot. I want, I feel like I want this film to be more of a satire on the military than it is. I feel like there is some stuff in here that is a little bit. So, I mean, come on, like even like the opening, like rah, rah, we're in the Marines now, like Sergeant thing. I mean, listen to this. How are, is this not setting us up to be like a military satire? <coughs> All right, sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal's a banquet. Every paycheck of fortune. Every formation of parade. I love the Corps. Man, this floor is freezing. What do you want me to do? Fetch your slippers for you? Gee, would you, sir? I'd like that. Look into my eye. Fall in, people. Come on. Let's go. I hate this job. Bro, we got some slack. Come on. By the way. Yeah. Another similarity to this movie has with something we talked about earlier is Platoon. Like, Aliens came out in 86, the same year as Platoon. And when we did that episode, remember we talked to the military guy who was like, I showed them how to make a movie. I took them out and blah, blah, blah. And I scared the pieces out of them. That was just the trend of 1986. Like, they did that for Aliens, too. They made everybody go through a really intense military camp. And it was actually, oh, really? like, yeah, it was actually Al Matthews who plays, like, their head who um, kind of led the camp because he had years of experience having been in Vietnam. It's so funny, like, hearing him talk about it, being like, rah, 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 rah. Like, kid, this is him talking about it in a documentary. I would like to think that I was hired because I do my job as an actor. But uh, reality is that um, because of my military experience, I'm also here. And I think we've done a good job, but we've got a lot of actors here who, you know, never seen a weapon before in their life. And... They're handling it well. I mean, I have to put the boot in every now and then, but uh, that's how it goes. We had an actual uh, physical fitness um, routine for them from uh, 8.30 in the morning uh, until 5 o'clock at night. And they were running, um, weightlifting, um, uh, calisthenics. Run us through drills and teach us how to salute and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, to march with all this heavy equipment. And you know well, what also jumped out of me? Now you're going to think yeah. I'm crazy. But this is where I like to go down rabbit holes. When they land on the planet, when they do that kind of like drop from outer mm-hmm. space and they're going down, I swear to God, Bill Paxton is making fun of Dr. Strangelove in his scream. He has the exact like Yahoo riding the missile down to the bottom scream. I swear it's the same. On my mark. Five. We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Two. One. Mark. Oh, I love Bill Paxton in this movie. And I I feel like, you know, just to draw a line backwards to Galaxy Quest, this is the character that, uh, that of course, Sam Rockwell bases his character on in Galaxy Quest, this Bill Paxton character. And it seems like Bill Paxton just had, like, free reign to do whatever they want. I think James Cameron really let them, like, build their characters, you know, dress up their armor. Everything on their armor is very specific to them. There's some, there, and I think that that stuff really shines through. And, um, Again, great actors really making it's like the way I felt about Yafakoto. I know nothing about Yafakoto, but he just carried himself in a way. But here I think they get the pop, and I I feel like that's something I love about a James Cameron film. He lets his side characters pop. Like across the board. There's ne like he is a fan of having someone step into a scene and be like, put a little shine on me right now. Like, he, he doesn't mind passing the camera and knowing that everybody can make his thing better. But his casting is 
across the board, always really great. I mean, you talk about Billy Zane in uh, Titanic and the real mustache twirling of him, you know, the Kathy Bates there, you know, you talk about like even Xander Berkeley, who was an amazing character actor, you know, in Walking Dead and, and so many other great shows. Uh, just as the father of Edward Furlong or the stepdad of Edward Furlong in Terminator 2, like side characters that resonate or leave some sort of impact. Miles Dyson, you know, uh, all these, you know, talk about uh, fucking um, Sigourney Weaver in Avatar, she even brings it, or or even Rabisi. They, they make you remember them. Even if their performances are big, you remember them. Like they just feel like it, there's an element of like showiness to them, but yeah. It's funny, like Bill Paxton was saying when he was playing this character, he kept thinking the audiences were going to hate him and that they were going to really look forward to when he dies because he's so loud. He's like, oh, on the one hand, I feel like Hudson is at least the most honest character. Like he's the one who is vocally the most scared, you know, yeah. vocally losing his mind and that there's not that many people who are calm in the face of trauma the way that the way that Ripley can manage to be. Like, I think well, the moment she tells the little girl that she's also scared is actually meaningful because she's admitting she's scared. I like that she's so scared. Well, I mean, is this, is Bill Paxton kind of the uh, version of the, I'm now forgetting her name, in the first film where she was all panicked at all times. Like, oh, we got to get out of here. You know, like, like they, they always are revealing that, you know, one person is like just fucking lost their shit. I know. It makes me think of when I watched a Transformers movie and there was an actor in the Transformers movie who's doing the Bill Paxton bit, you know, being like loud and freaked out and oh my God. And that when that character did die, everybody in my theater clapped. We were so happy. But Bill Paxton, I like that they give him room to grow. Like he always would talk about this character like he's in a kind of dyad relationship with Vasquez where they're both going through this horrible event. In that he says everything that's on his mind and Vasquez just like shoves it down. It doesn't talk about it. And Cameron did that thing that we heard he did on Titanic where he wrote down biographies for every single person. And he gave each person a backstory that wasn't ever going to be on the film, but that they would know happened to them. And it helps them play it differently. Like he told Vasquez that she had been a juvenile delinquent who was sentenced to life in a facility and that the only way that she could get out of this, her and that also kind of funny looking blonde haired guy, they're both in this like facility together. That's why they're so close that she could be a soldier. um, And it was the only way to not be locked up. So she plays Vasquez as a person with absolutely nothing to lose because like she's either in prison or she's here. Whereas we know that uh, Bill Paxton can go home in four weeks so he plays it as a guy who has everything to lose. And they're just coming at it from such different perspectives. Well, and you look, and that's the backstory shit that I don't need to hear, but I love that there is some there and I love that they had moments of it. Like that's the stuff that is like they're playing it and I'm buying it and I don't know it. It makes it richer, but like we don't need to get in the nitty gritty. And those are some of the deleted scenes where they get into some of those details. Um, but that like that's a good cut because I think that the performances like show you these different things and you get like, all right, I don't need to know all of it, but I get that type of persona. And, and I, um, but you know, in a way too, like Vasquez also comes at it, like they can come, they can become one dimensional too. You know, Vasquez can like is great, but an extra line here or there helps these characters pop. Although, I mean, I've heard a lot of people like complain about Vasquez of late because it's like, she is just 
really tough as shit, cool, like, you know, and, and I love the diversity of that whole crew and who's the strongest and who's the weakest. And it, it definitely plays with their expectations. And I think that that's something that James Cameron continues to take from Ridley Scott, like who gets killed, when they get killed, how they get killed, who's their leader. Um, but I think every now and then, at, because this is such a roller coaster movie, you lose any of those moments. Whereas I love the moment of watching the crew freak out when people died here. It's like, it's expected. We just move on. Like, you know, and, and I, that's why I did love that moment where they kill themselves in that tunnel, you know, where like it, like they at least is a moment of like, we're sharing, we're here, we're killing ourselves. It's like, we know that we're doing the right thing, but we also are, uh, just a, those yeah, humanity Vasquez moments. And Gorman, yeah. She like respects him for the first time. Yeah. And it is, I mean, you're right. It is one of those things where Vasquez feels like it was progressive for 86 and retrograde in the yeah. present era to have, you know, a blonde, blue eyed actress playing like a character in brownface. And, you know, Jeanette Goldstein has talked about how she just happened to be in London because she was, like, married to a guy who was an actor in London. And she saw an advertisement that said, I think, just, like, looking for legitimately American actresses. And so she got this part. And I like that they, you know, had this character, that the toughest person in there is, like, you know, a Latina female who's so badass and so strong. And I, okay, I'm saying badass about a female character again. But she really is. She really is. And she's credible and she's believable. But it's not, like... Anybody was there to also guide uh, Jeanette Goldstein's performance and make it credible. So all she could do was like have her parents send her librarian clippings from back home in California. They sent her stuff that was like basically interviews with gang members. So she only had kind of cliche stereotypes of gang members as a background stuff to create the character. And then the character becomes a little bit iffier. Yeah, I think that that's a, you know, it's a valid concern. We talked about this like back in Ben-Hur and this idea of like appropriation and, and, you know, the, and the, and the guilt that comes with it. And sometimes the guilt that goes back with a retroactive looking at things. And I, I think we have to, you know, find our balance and, and, and know when things are done to a stereotype versus uh, for harm. And when things are done to a stereotype that we're not intentionally doing harm but like you know the intent is different than the effect of it you know so that's it's a hard it's a it's a line to thread you can still hurt somebody even though you didn't intend to do it by the way speaking of ben-hur like sigourney weaver talked a lot in interviews at the time about how freaked out she was on the alien set because she could never watch scary movies and that like being around these aliens freaked her out and that she refused to actually learn how the aliens worked because she didn't want to know because it helped her to be so afraid of them, but that she'd be walking around the set and be like absolutely terrified. And meanwhile, the little kid who played Newt was like, they're just rubber. What is your problem? Uh, But as I was reading about this, uh, Sigourney talked about how when she was little, really the only stuff that she was kind of exposed to was that her mother would read her Ben-Hur. And so because she knew the story of Ben-Hur when she was little, the thing she was most terrified of was lepers. Oh, wow. Well, there it goes. Go back and get our leper shirts going that we have in get, our store. Going back and talk about lepers, man. I wanted to bring up a little bit of um, an issue that I brought up in the first movie. So, you know, I talked about how there was uh, musical similarities between the score in the first movie between Jaws and uh, an alien in a, in a moment. And uh, I found another one and I want to show you this one steals from another space film, arguably a space film that uh, I think uh, could be. Uh, on this list if we wanted. So I'm just going to share my screen here and you can take a listen. And if this sounds uh, 
at all uh, familiar to you. Let's take a look. Here we go. That, what you just heard, is from Star Trek II. And when I heard that in the movie, I jumped off the couch because I was like, what do I know that from? That's, a, that's something, that's something. And uh, James Horner did do the, uh, compose the music for both. And I read that he ran out of time to do a complete score. So he just used parts of Star Trek II in Aliens. And it's the exact same score. Like there is that is exactly in Aliens. And I thought that was wild. <laughs> I love that you have such a good ear for that. I feel like I listen to screams and you listen oh. to music. I, you know, it was just it, like, I know that song so well. I use that as like a pump up song for myself. Uh, and really? uh, oh, sometimes Wait, I love like that song. Hopping I up and down, it. getting ready. I do it. I do it. Well, speaking of getting you pumped up, Paul. Oh, I want to show you my this God. In the documentary of the making of aliens. Tell me what you're seeing now. I'm seeing a very attractive man supporting the Los Angeles Clippers wearing a nice Clippers hat. Michael Bean. You know what? I always knew you had the goods. That is awesome. I love that. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy. Actually, you know that speaking of the making of this, we've kind of left out what a nightmarish shoot this was. The stories oh, really? of the making of Aliens are crazy because oh, they sent, yeah, they are. Yeah, they sent James Cameron to make this film over in England at Pinewood Studios where they had shot the last Alien, you know, Pinewood being like the place to make big spectacles in England. And he did not get along with the crew at all. Well, they hated him, right? Because he wasn't Ridley Scott. Because he wasn't Ridley Scott and because James Cameron is like such a like, go, go, go. Let's do this. Let's do this. That he was losing his mind at a tradition that they had at Pinewood, which is at 10 o'clock in the morning, a lady would come into the studio with a little cart full of tea and little cheese puffs and everybody would take a tea time break. And he was like, what are you doing? We don't have time for tea time. I have to make this movie. And so he just started absolutely freaking out on them. And because he felt like they didn't trust him to make this film. So like the assistant director was trying to undermine all his shots and saying like, you can't film it this way. And Cameron was like, I must film it this way. The assistant director winds up like quitting or getting fired. And when that happens, a lot of the crew goes on strike as a protest. Yeah, It was intense. And like one of the people who has the best stories about it is somebody that we haven't talked about yet that I think we really have to which is James Cameron's producer and wife at the time, Gail Ann Hurd, who I think doesn't get enough credit for creating the character of Ripley herself, for adding to it with all of the stuff that she thought really needed to be in this character. I mean, Gail was, you know, kind of like him, and she comes out of working for Roger Corman. She knows how to do this stuff. She's a really brilliant lady. Like, here's actually her in an interview from 1986 talking about, like, her life and working on this film. And what did you learn most from that experience? I learned a little bit of everything mm -hmm. from Roger. Um, I think primarily I learned how to keep a film on time and on budget. And through extrapolating the experiences that I had working for him, I think I was able to add another element of my particular taste and my particular focus on characters, which 
wasn't so much mm -hmm. uh, something he concentrated on. Is it more accident or design that you have been involved in so many fantasies up to now? I really enjoy the genre. Well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you would say that. And having said that, could you elaborate a little bit? Uh, for example, in the genre, has there been ample room for fully developed female characters? I think it's been rare. I think, think women, not only in, in the genre, but in other genres, tend to be either girlfriends or victims and are ancillary to the male hero. And I, and I think, hopefully with Aliens, we're establishing a new trend towards strong women characters who are the focus of the action and the story itself. On the flip side of that, isn't it also true that, well, Halloween is a classic example of the woman being ultimately the only effective combatant to the monster? I think, I think psychological, and certainly here. <laughs> psychological studies will, will show you in reality that women tend to handle terrible crises better than men do. Um, maybe not across the board, not, maybe not every woman versus every man, but I think it certainly um, exists inside of us, strengths that we never realized we had. Do you think and I really just want to give Gail a shout out because I feel like this character of Ripley isn't as intensive without Gail. And like when Gail would get interviewed about it, she would be like, oh no, it's all Sigourney, Sigourney adding to it. But I really believe that there's a lot of Gail creating this character and like thinking about the stuff that will make it a lot deeper. But when she went to England, it was terrible. I mean, Gail just got like harassed by everybody on this film because since she was not just a producer, but she was James Cameron's girlfriend and then wife, nobody thought she really had the credentials to be there. Nobody trusted her. They thought she was like girlfriended into the project. Or they would ask her things like, how does a little girl like you produce a big movie like this? And it, she was just losing her mind. She was saying, especially in England, when people were undermining her, like they were calling yeah. the, they were calling somebody else, assuming that this man was the producer when it was her. And he was like, no, it's Gail. Gail will do the hiring. Gail will do the firing. Um, they just didn't believe that she was really the person uh, holding, holding all the cards. And she was like, Margaret Thatcher is your prime minister. Like, why are you not more advanced? How is this so insane? Wow. I mean, you know, it, look, misogyny runs rampant. And I think especially when you see something that is stereotypically, you know, a male dominated action movie, like you like, you know, you don't, you see this, but you know, Gail is also someone who is, you know, behind the walking dead and a very big part of the walking dead and has had an amazingly cool career um, showing that not only does she have the goods, uh, but she continues to have the goods and, uh, and makes, really smart, cool shit. Uh, it's kind of kind of like a happier version of like the Polly Platt, uh, Peter Bogdanovich story where, you know, Gail and, you know, Heard gets to go on and, and make and continues to make at an equal level, uh, you know, this stuff. And that, so there's uh, there's something really cool. I, I really like her a lot. And my friends who worked on Walking Dead just said she's like, knows her shit and wants you to be up on it like is not doesn't suffer fools but also can like get in the mud and be a full-on nerd for what she's doing which is like what you want you know and like you know i didn't want to say badass so i tried to say a bunch of other <laughs> words besides badass um can i say one badass move uh that not gail made but uh but james cameron made and if without this move there may have never been this movie and I don't think that would have meant that there wouldn't have been a James Cameron. I just think that James Cameron may have taken a little while longer to get to the budgets of James Cameron that we know and love. You know, I mentioned earlier that Fox did not ever ask Sigourney Weaver if she was cool with this movie. They tried to get her back. She didn't want to do it. It took her a long time. She was very hesitant to wreck what the character was. 
and um and they haven't they don't have her signed on and they need to get her and they have like this small window with James Cameron and everybody and James Cameron and Gail and her go on this vacation their honeymoon and they like if she doesn't sign on by the time we get back the movie's dead so Cameron calls up Schwarzenegger and he has this plan secret plan he's going to tell Schwarzenegger he's going to remake Alien but he's going to do it his own way retcon the whole thing no ripley no nothing it's going to be james cameron's aliens and it's going to be awesome he tells it to schwarzenegger knowing that schwarzenegger will then tell his agent that maybe to even get a part in it like to be a part of that franchise now who knows his agent then starts spreading it around then Sigourney Weaver's agent finds out about it and then is like, what? You're remaking Alien? You're not putting Sigourney Weaver in there? We have to get her and this is a travesty. And then forces Sigourney Weaver into the movie that they always wanted her for and never had an intent to make without her and basically got Sigourney to sign into the movie on the threat that they would wreck the legacy by not putting her in it. It was a genius play. And and everything that we know about James Cameron, about being slightly manipulative and uh, and acting... Uh, or I should say asking a lot of his actors, uh, he definitely, you know, is learning there how to manipulate a situation. I really want to take aliens and use it almost as like a, a mobile hanging from the sky and put all these things dangling from it that help explain all of the future choices that James Cameron will ever make. Because mm. doesn't it feel like what he does here, like working with this big studio, adapting a property, thinking about things in terms of like franchises, sets the table for like where he's going to go with this. Like not just how to get the talent that you want, how to get like the names that you want, how to adapt and how to function. I feel like even with the images, I'm watching James Cameron figure out touchstones that he's going to keep coming back to over and over again. Like a woman and a man limping, going down a hallway, somebody coming in in a giant mech suit. I mean, that's just Avatar right there. Like he's, you feel like, you're watching him chew on the ideas that are going to haunt him for the rest of his life. I guess like Ridley Scott did himself, you know, that yeah. we're watching these two people create. Ugh, now I'm like thinking about it in terms of like childhood foot fetishes or whatever, but like come up with the fetishes that they're going to keep coming back to and back to and back to for the rest of their career. You know, I, I think that once you taste a little bit of success, you are always trying to duplicate it and, and, and give people more, but then also branch out and slowly but surely. And I think that James Cameron is someone who does that. Like, I think that he branches out in technology. I think he branches out in the stories that he wants to tell. Um, but I think they all kind of come back to this, like spectacle, 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 spectacle. And Terminator is not spectacle. This is spectacle. Uh, roller coaster, second half of the movie being you know, something big and in, in a battle and, a, and, you know, but not a battle like a Transformers battle. Like this is like a, you know, it is a multi-tiered, you know, scene after scene, set piece after set piece, kind of easy to follow battle. And I think that uh, you, you can see a lot. I love that idea of like, this is the mobile that holds all of this work together. And if we want to just draw back and go back to Ridley Scott for a second, I think Ridley Scott's an actor or I mean a director who challenges himself and, and tries a lot of, uh, a lot of different things for better or for worse. I mean, you look at his, his, you know, his uh, directing, like who would you rather have? Would you rather be direct? Would you rather be Ridley Scott or James Cameron? James Cameron. Really? Yeah. Not even a question to be James Cameron makes films about human beings in a way that I almost never get from a Ridley Scott film. 
I just connect hmm. to James Cameron more. Like he is much See, more I, my I, vibe. I think that James Cameron and Ridley Scott both are lacking fully on. I think that James Cameron makes the basis like most black and white human relationships kind of stories, which I think are very effective when you watch. It's almost like watching like Commedia dell'arte, you know, in the sense it's like I get that character. That's good. That's bad. That's love. That's hate. Um, and Ridley Scott, I think, makes very vacant characters that are hard to wrap your head around. Uh, so I think they both have their positives and negatives, but I would say like, you know, when you look at, I just think when you look at like, um, I don't know, gladiator, the Martian, uh, you know, the, uh, American gangster body of lies, matchstick men, black Hawk down Hannibal, uh, gladiator, GI Jane, white squall, Thelma and Louise, like blade runner alien. I'm like, well, that's a cool lineup of movies that don't feel similar to me. That's fair. And yet I would trade two gladiators because you said gladiator twice. Oh, sorry. For half a Titanic. In fact, I, I mean, don't even look, know if I'd make that trade, but you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. All right. And that so look. Said, like, I, I know that we still need to do our Thelma and Louise episode down the line. Um, but I could see a world where we didn't send a Ridley Scott film to space. And I can't uh, see a world where we I'm, don't send a James Cameron to space. I mean, I, I would agree with you there. I, I, I'm, I'm on your same page. I mean, look, well, I would want you. that film to be Titanic. But then also huh, now I'm thinking, do I want it to be Terminator 2? Because I, think honestly, I want I think it to Terminator be I want it to be Terminator 2. Is, yeah. Or can it, I mean, maybe, can wow. It be both? This is a this is a big shocking moment for all the fans <laughs> of the podcast. Um, Amy, this movie comes out. It's on the, you know. Sigourney gets nominated for an Oscar, like I said. She's on the cover of Time magazine. People generally love this movie, right? I know one person definitely didn't, but... uh... Yeah, people generally really like this movie. They thought it looked great. They thought the technicals looked great, which I thought the technicals were actually just okay, which I thought the technicals look a lot better in Alien. I think Alien is a much more beautiful film. There's so much, like... Rear projection in this movie. That yeah, a lot of rear, is, back to like nineteen forty shit. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, every time the ship is like dangling in front of a sky, I'm like, oh god, where are we? The ship doesn't but look I, half as convincing to me as the ship does in Alien. But I will say, I love uh, the way that they make that loader work. It looks, I mean, that is kind of flawless. Like when you realize it's like a man in a suit behind it and stuff. Yeah, that thing looks amazing, and the colors of it, the way that it's lit, like that really pops. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so most people are like, this is great. It's, I didn't think we needed this film, but it is a technical achievement. I am dazzled. I think Ripley's great. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of applause. Except for Gene Siskel. Gene Siskel dismissed it in just a few sentences. This is all he said. Count me out of the fan club for this one. To me, Aliens is one extremely violent, protracted attack on the senses. As surviving space explorer Sigourney Weaver again confronts the spiny, slithering creatures who killed her buddies in the original film Alien. Some people have praised the technical excellence of Aliens. Well, the Eiffel Tower is technically impressive, but I wouldn't want to watch it fall apart on people for two hours. That's interesting. You know, and it's interesting that you say that Siskel uh, says that because Roger Ebert also didn't like it. This is like a two thumbs down movie for them, which is really interesting because they seem to be like populist. Like they like they like a big fun movie like this, but to see they both kind of were overwhelmed by it. I wonder, I haven't looked into this, but this feels like one that Roger Ebert would have changed his mind on later. Yeah. I respect his ability to change his mind, but sometimes I'm like, you did just, when you were wrong, you kind of changed your opinion. You're like, okay, okay, okay. I do like Aliens now. I wouldn't be surprised if later on he elevated Aliens higher than he did the first time. This is just a guess. 
I agree with that. So I think we've already talked about whether or not we would go to space. I think it was great to take this detour to talk about these two movies because I think many people combine them as one. And I'm glad that you pulled an audible here. I mean, you know, if we weren't so deep in the series, uh, I would say like we got to watch Starship Troopers. But I think there'll be another time for that. I think we can have a satire series or something like that as well. You know, Paul, I think the surprising thing to me about doing this twofer, though, of Alien and Aliens is I would have guessed that this would come down to me as a choice. Which one do I want to put in? And now having watched them back to back, I think I've decided neither. For some reason, watching them back to back has canceled it out for me. And I think we're good. We don't need an alien. All right. You know what? I'm with you. Let's go forward. Let's leave it. Let's jettison that out of the cargo bay. Bye bye, alien. The votes are finally in. The voices have finally been heard in the last film of our space series. There was a very tight race, but at the end of the day, between All the Right Stuff and Apollo 13, the choice made by the listeners of this show was Apollo 13. So uh, take a listen to the trailer. On the 13th minute of the 13th hour... The 13th Apollo mission was launched. A million things could have gone wrong. Our next broadcast will be from the surface of the moon. On April 13th, one did. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. We got a wicked shimmy up here. Houston, we are venting something out into space. It's definitely a gas of some sort. This is Houston. Say again, please. It must be the oxygen. You see what I see? Fight. Your heart rates are skyrocketing. We have a 401 alarm. That can't be real. Oh, man, it is fighting me. Jack, what's the story here? I, I, I keep losing radio signal. That can't happen. It's got to be instrumentation. And we got some serious time pressure here. We're looking at less than 15 minutes of life support left. Fight, they're all over the place. Damn, we're losing it. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. You can get that wherever you stream your movies. And Amy, I look forward to ending our space series on uh, a classic. I would say a Shawshank-level TBS afternoon or TNT uh, classic. We will see you next week for Apollo 13. 